Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Daisy Turnbull is Director of Wellbeing at an independent girls' school in Sydney, in fact, my own alma mater, where she has been a teacher for the past eight years. Daisy has taught across school systems, including some time at a behavioural school, working with students from diverse backgrounds. Before going into teaching, Daisy worked in interactive advertising as a producer and in strategy roles tapping into demographic changes and running nationwide qualitative surveys. She's an accredited Lifeline Crisis Support Counsellor and regularly volunteers on the Crisis Support Line. She's the mother of two children, holds a combined bachelor's degree in arts commerce, a graduate diploma in secondary teaching, and a Master of Arts in Theological Studies. Daisy's on the New South Wales Board of the Australian Republican Movement, and in January this year, Daisy's first book, 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids, was released, providing a guide on developing independence and resilience in young children. So without further ado, welcome to the politics of everything, Daisy. Thank you for having me. Okay, childhood ambitions. What did you want to be when you grew up, and did that happen? What was your early career journey? You know, I think when I was little, like probably, you know, the age where most kids want to be firefighters and that kind of thing, I did want to be a lawyer because that's what I saw both my parents doing. But when I, as I got older, I remember very much seeing my interest being in in business and in marketing. And I remember as a teenager, really liking advertising and being interested in advertising and constantly falling for the, uh, you know, chocolate bars or the checkout and that kind of thing and finding that interesting. And so that's what got me into, I did arts commerce at Sydney, as you said, and I, I started working in advertising. But I think I always thought I would eventually become a teacher. I I'm very short and I always remember thinking there's no way I could walk into a classroom age 21 and tell 16 or 17-year-olds what to do with their lives when I was probably shorter than most of them. And so I retrained as a teacher when I was about 25 and that's kind of started this journey, which I really love. Absolutely. You found found where you're meant to be, it sounds like, anyway. Yeah. It's funny when friends do the whole like, oh, if you were to have a career change, what would you do? And I was like, I kind of did it already. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we've got a lot of life in us. You never know. There could be another plot twist in there. So do you think we are less risk adverse as a society now than say even when you grew up or I'm a bit older than you when I grow up or just more aware of the risks around us in 2021? And of course, most of us are very much aware of risk because we're living in a global pandemic world. What's your view on our, I guess, trajectory of risk over time? So risk is really interesting because it's something that has changed, especially when we're talking about parenting and risks. It's something that's changed very slowly. And there are certain points where you can say, okay, parenting changed. And one of them was, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was an increase of kidnapping, especially in the US and the UK. And that tightened parenting styles absolutely as it should have. But then as the world got safer again, parenting didn't relax. And I do think as parents today, we are very risk averse. And 
you know, the risk of something bad happening, which might be a very small risk, will stop us letting our kids do things. I think in a pandemic it's interesting because, you know, in Sydney right now we're in a lockdown, of course, in most of the east coast of Australia actually, a lockdown of sorts, and it means that people can't make their own risk assessments on what they want to do especially you know people that are vaccinated or some people are saying they don't want to get vaccinated and 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 what the way people measure their own risk is is limited absolutely yeah look we are in different kind of territory in a way and I suppose you know you've got that teaching experience and you get to see I guess up close and personal what what our younger generations are going through what do you think the biggest challenge is when it comes to encouraging them and us as parents and caretakers to take sensible risks if that is at all possible. So firstly, I absolutely believe that sensible risks are possible. And I think a lack of risks is is actually the far riskier thing. I think what what you want is to see your kids want to do things and respond positively to them. So not always be shutting them down. So I'm not suggesting getting your two-year-old who's never used a skateboard to stand at the top of a massive skate ramp and say, go for it. I'm saying as your kid gets interested in skateboarding, take them somewhere where they can figure out what they want to be able to do. Ditto for anything that's a relationship or, you know, a, a risk to do with other people. I think as parents we often think we should just step in automatically when our kids are in an awkward situation but that's not teaching them the skill of learning to interact with people properly. And I think back to the lockdown, I feel like so many podcasts at the moment are just going to be about the lockdown. There is a huge risk for young kids and teenagers in not being able to socialise. Obviously, we're all affected by social isolation, but for kids, it is the multiple social interactions they have in a day that are experiences that develop who they are and how they interact in the future. And they're missing out on that opportunity. And that means that when we get out of this lockdown and kids can go back to school, we have to recognise they're not going to be where we expect them to be for their age and we need to give them the opportunity to catch up. Yeah, that's a really important perspective and something I'm highly aware of with two school-aged children at the moment, homeschooling and obviously being away from their their activities as well, the the more sort of risky activities, if you like, even, you know, sports and and those sorts of things. They're just not able to do that at the moment with other people. And I I think you've alluded to the fact why taking risks is really important to young people to develop and grow. And I guess the flip side is what's your view on the cost of not doing this? I mean, is it about just less resilience or less ability to know yourself? Like what are the greater risks? if they don't take those sensible risks? It's a real short to long-term decision. So the short-term risk of letting your kid take some risks is, you know, they might hurt themselves or get upset in the process or feel uncomfortable. The long-term risk is increased rates of anxiety and depression that we're seeing. Anxiety is often a fear of, of, of doing things or new things and if you don't expose your kids to things that they can learn to do, they will become more anxious about them. It's funny, my my son doesn't have anxiety but at Easter time we were up in the country and we went to a kind of some neighbours were having like a barbecue and we pulled up in the paddock and there were like 30 people sitting around in a circle with a bonfire in the middle and my son who's seven was just he just clocked it and went this is weird I've never seen this before and he was a bit uncomfortable about coming out of the car for about five minutes and then he calmed down but I was realising you know that lockdown even though it was short for him it did mean that there are just he wasn't used to seeing like 30 or 40 people sitting around in a circle. Like that's not, you know, sitting around having chats, that's not something he's seen a lot of. So 
when your kid gets anxious about something, it's about recognizing that what you want is for them to have that experience safely so that that anxiety doesn't build. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. And I'm even just picturing that scenario of even I got a bit anxious to think about 30 people sitting together, even though, you know, that was very regular in my life with my social networks and parents coming together with kids. But because we've been in lockdown for months on end, I'm just pondering yeah. it because I think it's a really how we come out of this and how we as like we basically have told kids, particularly young kids, who it has to be quite black and white for them to understand, look, we have to wear a mask now, we have to wash our hands, we have to check in, we can't catch up with your friends this week, we can't have people to our house. So they're all things they're going to have to de-risk later when we come out of lockdown. Absolutely. And for example, my daughter is quite selective and when she's COVID safe, so like zero interest in being COVID safe while sitting on my lap watching a movie, but wants to be very COVID safe if she's having an ice cream and doesn't want to share it. <laughs> Um, Selective COVID safe. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Look, risky actions and rash thinking with teenagers particularly seem to be simpatico. I reflect on my own teenage years and I think about some of the, the risks. Before social media was around that I would have taken, you know, it's quite in- innocent things in hindsight, but, you know, not, not doing what you say you're going to do. You're not really at the movies. You're at your friend's house, all those sorts of things. But the adolescent brain is evolving and has not fully developed into the adult brain. And I know I've got two sons and I'm often aware that, you know, they're sort of saying it's not until their 20s that they are really 100% there in terms of that development. Do we need to rethink our expectations of our teenagers and young people and allow them risks but with consequences if they do something, if they fail or they let us down, there is some consequences. But how much do we need to navigate that for them and how much is it about them having the experience and then learning for themselves the consequences? So the teenage brain is uh, quite famous for having not a huge amount of self-regulation and that's, you know, the prefrontal cortex is still developing and the amygdala, which is kind of the emotional responses, is a bit, you know, kicks in as well. So I think we often give teenagers a hard time and we expect them to be more grown up than maybe they are because they're very eloquent and they can write essays and they can argue things and they can do complicated maths, but their brain and their emotions are still developing. And it's in that experience of that development that they learn to become adults. And I think the more we take away those experiences, the harder it'll be for them when they are adults. So the best time to get rejected from a job or a promotion or anything is when you are a teenager because you learn it. It's far better to not get a position you go for at 16 or 17 than the first time it happens you're 27 or 28. And a lot of the experiences that teenagers have are like smaller versions of what they will have as adults and far better to have those experiences with, you know, loving parents or family or aunts and uncles or friends around you then when you are a grown-up and you're just expected to do things. And I think that one of the things that's quite interesting is on social media, everyone's complaining about having to be an adult or adulting. And and I think that that process of adulting should start quite young. So, you know, it's it's something that people probably say all the time, but doing chores from a young age, you start doing them, you get used to them, you add a few more to the list and you add a few more and you add a few more. And so by the time your teenager moves out of home, when they're 18 or 19 or whatever age they are, they should be moving into a share house or a house on their own or into a relationship, whatever it is, as a pretty good flatmate. Like you want to raise a kid that can be a good flatmate. Yeah. 
<laughs> totally. I'm just thinking of that movie, Failure to Launch. It was probably about a decade yes. ago with Sarah Jessica Parker and, you know, the love interest didn't was still living at home and, you know, she went, came home from the date and she and she thinks it's his house and he's actually like his mum's fixing him a sandwich and it's just like eye-opening and that was his that was his thing. He just never evolved beyond being an 18-year-old boy. Yeah, and I, I think there is a bit of that but there's also the, the contrast is that I do think sometimes parents just flick and they go, hang on, you should be an adult by now. And it's like, well, hang on, when did you give me the chance to be an adult and to take risks and to make stupid decisions? Yeah, it's baby. You don't just wake up at 18 and have everything sorted, right? Yeah. You've got to learn those things younger. So, look, I'm Gen X, the so-called latchkey generation, who basically left home, ran around the local area as probably, you know, now definitely in our late sort of tweens, we were definitely left on our own. Ride your bike, didn't have a mobile phone to track us down, no curfew except come home for dinner was pretty much it or that, you know, you needed needed something from home that you pop back out again. Look, things did seem simpler and bad things did happen as you talked about earlier in the 80s and 90s with the increasing kidnappings in the US and so forth. But we really learned how to sort of be a bit more self-sufficient, how to solve problems for ourselves as kids among ourselves, such as falling off that bike or getting a bit lost on the way home. What really changed, do you think? Is it just about the fact there was a spike in awareness about kid abductions? I mean, I, I often think surely there wasn't more kidnappers then than there is now. I mean, what is it that's really changed about the way we parent? Well, I think so that the kidnapping statistics are from Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and that is a great book and a, one I reference a lot in 50 Risks. That I think was definitely a factor and it is less so now. But I think what also happened is parents started comparing themselves to each other a lot more and there's a psychological theory known as lakes of comparison. And 20 years ago, your lakes of comparison were the other parents, let's face it, probably more likely to be mums, in your kid's class or your friends who have kids around the same age. Now, because of social media, and I think, you know, Facebook groups have a lot to answer for here, parents are comparing themselves to the entire world of the internet. And we know people are not reluctant to share opinions with what people are doing with their kids. And so parents start to become fearful of doing things that they used to do and they thought were fine when they were kids with their kids because they will be judged by other parents. Then you also add the layer of the law. So the law is a really interesting thing because firstly in, in Australia, different laws, different states, all of that. Take it to America, you've got 50 of them, lots of different laws. It's actually quite hard to know where the law ends and just judgment begins. So for example, in New South Wales, in Australia where we are, there is a, uh, a law, not a law, it's a recommendation on the transport website. And it says that you should hold hands with your child walking down the street or down the pavement, the footpath, until they are at least 12. Now, I have a son who's about to turn eight. He is almost my height and he does not want to hold my hand walking the street and I think it would be really weird. It's a bit emotionally distressing as the mum. You're like, you don't want to hold my hand anymore, but at the same time, they're growing up. Luckily, my five-year-old is very happy to hold my hand, but I recognise that will end. By holding your kid's hand walking down the street and crossing the road, they are outsourcing their knowledge of what to do around cars and other pedestrians and cyclists and people with prams and people in wheelchairs to you. You are making every single decision for them and they are just going along with you. By getting them to walk on their own, they are learning what to do. 
so I think that, you know, yes, there the world is safer now than it was. It's easier to contact people. It's easier, you know, my kids know my phone number, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, who you're comparing yourself to is really hard to find. So the other side to your question is how do we get back there if that's where we want to go? And you've got to find some other parents who are willing to do it because no one wants to be the kid riding around the neighborhood on their own. That would be really lonely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just not not normalized anymore. No. And it is about normalizing that and saying, hey, especially, you know, lockdown is a great time to do it to say, hey, the kids are allowed to go for bike rides. Why don't we let them go for a bike ride for an hour? And the parents can just like have some quiet for a moment and the kids come back and you draw a map of where they're allowed to go and all of that. And the kids want that responsibility. Like, do not give this to a kid who doesn't want that responsibility. But if your kid wants more responsibility, give it to them because it makes them feel more competent and it develops more autonomy and more responsibility. Yeah, that's a great example. Look, technology has changed things considerably and in your book, 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids, you cover this and you have a view that it's not necessarily been for the better. Why do you think this? Well, I think technology offers a huge amount of benefits. I'm not saying that technology is bad, but I do think that there are some things that we are potentially letting kids do online that are then not being replaced by other experiences. So if you think about, you know, childhood is a a collection of experiences, we know that texting is not the same as talking on the phone or seeing someone in person, but we know that teens and and kids will text a lot. I think with technology it it, it means that kids forget that there are other humans on the other side of a computer game and other people with feelings, you know. I also think that with technology, as I mentioned before, it means parenting is a lot more stressful for parents. So I think that parents are jumping onto Google and going, my child won't eat vegetables, what's going to happen? And you go, they're clearly going to die of scurvy. (laughs) Oh, that was always the threat, wasn't it? That we're going to get scurvy or pirates amongst us? Yeah, exactly. And And it inflames a lot of parental fear. I think the best advice I was given when I went into the hospital to have my son is a friend said, you know, there's going to be like so many midwives and nurses that come in and tell you, you know, how to breastfeed, how to do this, how to do that. Pick one that you like and stick with their advice and then just ignore the rest of them. And I do think that we do a lot of shopping around as parents and that's fine, but we've got to find the people whose advice we agree with and who speak to us and kind of stick with that. No, I agree with that. And I think social media as parents, you know, it can be great, but sometimes asking a bunch of strangers at two in the morning when you've got a child that's not sleeping or a sick, what should I do, is sometimes not the best thing to be doing. You know, it, it actually can sometimes end, you end up in more of a conjurum about, oh, my goodness, whose advice do I take? I don't know any of these people. Exactly. And, you know, so many dangerous ideas are spread through online groups. Yeah, absolutely. So how can you learn to trust your inner worried parent? And I guess go against that trend to hover or helicopter our kids more, that sort of a term which I remember hearing when I first had children. And people were quite proud of it that they were helicopter parents. So that was that was interesting when I when I was like, oh really? And then it was like free rangers, all these labels, right? So how can we approach this gently and maybe taking a few risks rather than just an all or nothing approach? So firstly, I think there's this great book you should buy. It's called 50 Risks to Take with Your Kids. No. um, (laughs) uh, Look, I think that the first thing is you got to actually assess your kid. So is your kid 
wanting to do more than they're currently doing. I would not have written my book if I had had my daughter first because she is not desperate to go and do new things. It was my son and his personality that made me go, yeah, he wants to do more stuff. I've got to get him ready there. That's the first thing. So it's, it's, it's who your kid is, which means your approach to parenting might be slightly different for each kid if you have more than one kid. Of course. The other thing is, and this is kind of what inspired the book, I think it's fair to say we all agree that a kid in year seven, so when they're 12, should be able to, if school is close by, walk or get the bus or the train to school, get there on their own. Yep. Like we feel okay with this as a concept. Yes? Yes. Yes. But then the question is, what are you doing at age 11 and 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 to get them there? And I think the parents are thinking, yeah, yeah, they'll be able to do that when they're 12, but not considering the little steps that get them there. Yeah. Leaving, so leaving if you think about like, late sometimes, I think. You suddenly then they're I, presented with all this. You need to get in the bus. You need to get yourself home. You're in high school now. You know, yeah. all of that all at once. And, you know, 12 is a really difficult age to change schools and which most kids do when they go from, you know, a local public school to a, a secondary school. And it's, yeah, it's a difficult time to do that. So you kind of actually want them to be across all the other stuff before they start at school. So maybe that's learning your mobile number when they start at kindy. Maybe it's walking home from primary school when they're in year three or four. Maybe it's getting the bus somewhere and meeting you somewhere when they're 10, you know, it's those steps that get them there. Yeah, no, that's great. Great advice. And, of course, everyone will be rushing out to buy the book, I'm sure. <laughs> Look, everyone gets to where they are, I think, with some great support networks and sometimes it's formal mentors and sometimes it isn't. Do you have one or two that stand out and what have they taught you about life and your career? Yeah, okay. So, like, first one is quite obvious, but I would say my mum has been a huge role model. She's always... Uh, worked the whole time I grew up. So for me, having a mum who worked was something that meant I aspired to that as well. And that's always been very important to me. She's very civic minded and she really cares about about women. And I think they're two things that I've carried through. And so, so definitely my mum. The other one I would say is a good friend of mine, Maria O'Brien, who is a lawyer. She lives in South Australia now. And we became friends, God, we became friends when I was 25, so 11 or 12 years ago, and she has kids that are older than me, older than older than mine are, so she had kids before me, and her youngest is a few months older than my eldest. And she went back to work and she's a really successful lawyer and I just remember she always told me the the, the benefits of working and yes it's she I remember her saying to me it's she goes it's just absolutely insane for five or six years but it's worth it afterwards and and I think for me as a young mum seeing her do it a few years ahead of me in everything has helped me so much to see that you know it can be done and how important it is for me to have a career as well as have my kids yeah, I hear you on that. Um, totally agree. I'm on, I'm on the same page when it comes to all those thoughts. So that's that's a bit of synergy there. So what would be your final thought or message for us on the politics of taking risks? Okay, my final message is this. One day your teenager is going to be faced with a very big hill and a shopping trolley, as all teenagers are at some point. And what you want is for your teenager to be able to have an experience of having taken risks as kids and understanding their own risk profile and knowing what they are and are not capable of and making a good decision based on that. And that's not to say they won't go down the hill in a shopping trolley or on a McDonald's tray, but it's that 
they're making the decision based on their own experiences rather than on yours. Grand advice. If you want to hear more from Daisy Turnbull, there'll be some details about her book and her contact details for social media on my show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.